Okay, tonight uh, the reading is Psalm 119, 40, 49 through 61. There we are. 49 through 64. We're all here. Okay. You can read along with me. Here we are. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Thanks be to God. Hello. My name is Dan, and um, a lot of you guys haven't really seen me up here because I've never preached before, here or anywhere. Um, Brian is the one you've seen. He does all, he does all of our preaching. Uh, and out of uh, we've been here for about two years now as a church. Now, out of 106 weeks that we've met on Sundays, Brian's preached 105 of those, which is pretty insane. So I figured I should pick up the slack and and, and uh, do my part. So I'm really excited to be here tonight. I'm excited to do this for the first time and uh, excited for you all to be here. And uh, I really I trust that God's going to use this um, for his glory and for our good. So if you guys would pray with me, we'll get started. Yeah, Lord, we, we are thankful for your word. Thanks for this psalm. Um, thanks that, that life is found in your word. And um, I, I pray that your spirit would be here tonight working in us, um, revealing Christ to us. And, uh, and letting us see the truth of your scripture. I pray you would use this time, um, yeah, for your glory and for our good, like I said before. Lord, we ultimately want your glory, and I pray that you would receive that tonight. So, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> it's been really fun over the last three or four weeks to really kind of dig into this this piece of Psalm 119. I think that a lot of times when I read the Bible, and probably a lot of us, we kind of get through it, maybe get the gist of a passage, and then move on to something else, but, but now that this week, or these few weeks since I've been preparing to preach, I, I've had to really dig in and figure out what, what God is trying to tell us through this, this portion of Psalm 119, and um, it's interesting, Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is, is pretty repetitive, you, hear the same, you see the same themes kind of coming up again and again through this, uh, through this psalm. Um, but as I, as I really dug in and spent a lot of time these last few weeks, um, I noticed some, some some specific themes popping up in this, in this chunk. Uh, the main thing being suffering. So he talks a lot about suffering and his response, the psalmist's response to his suffering. And, and I think that there are a lot of implications uh, for us and how we can uh, endure suffering well. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. Real quick, let's just walk through 
what the psalmist says about his suffering. I'm just going to kind of read what he says here, and then I'll, I'll explain it in a second a bit more. He says he's afflicted. He says the insolent deride him. He says he's surrounded by wicked people who forsake God. Um, he mentions the house of his sojourning, this idea that, that he's without a home or that his home is, is kind of traveling or sojourning. Uh, he says the cords of the wicked ensnare him. <clears throat> Earlier in Psalm 119, he, uh, he mentions or he says that my soul clings to the dust. He says my soul melts away for sorrow. He talks about people who taunt him. Um, so just as the, there's a picture of a guy here who's, who's enduring suffering and anguish. He's being ridiculed. Um, he's surrounded by wicked people. He's in, he's in a foreign land. This, this idea of sojourning or the house of his sojourning. Um, I'm not sure if that means he's, he's physically homeless or if he's just kind of emotionally homeless, but it's definitely the idea of he doesn't feel like he's at home, doesn't feel grounded, um, feels like he's in a, in a foreign place. Um, my soul clings to the dust. Brian talked about this a couple weeks ago. This idea of, of being to the point of death, um, soul melts away for sorrow, people who taunt him. So we just see a guy here who's enduring a lot of suffering, whether it's internal, external, there are actually people that are trying to hurt him, ensnare him, trap him. Um, so there's external persecution stuff, there's stuff inside, he's just he's suffering in anguish. Um, so we see a guy who's suffering a lot here. Um, and it's funny, when, when I read about suffering in the Bible, here in the Psalms and in, in Acts and other places, um, it's, it's a lot of times really kind of exciting and um, a little bit more romantic than what we typically think about in, in our own lives. Um, and I even think about how faith-building some of the, the suffering that we see in the Bible would be. Um, I, th- I think about, like, if I was flogged or whipped or something for my faith or for sharing my faith or thrown into prison. Um, I mean, I think that would, I would be excited almost. And I would, of course I would leave rejoicing that I was, I was counted worthy to suffer for Christ, right? And, and I even think about if I was um, maybe tortured or even put to death, I think that I wouldn't maybe be happy about it, but I think I would, I would endure it before denying Christ. Um, and even if people were, for, were outwardly taunting me for my faith, um, I think, okay, well, I, I might even take some pride in that. It would just show that I'm, you know, excited about Jesus. Um, but when I actually look at the suffering that I experience in my own life, I don't think that's typically the case. I don't think I have that attitude. Um, I think that I, I don't even really see it as suffering for the gospel. I just I, I kind of, you know, just see it as, as hard times in my life. And we endure all kinds of suffering in life, right? So um, from cancer and sickness and death and, and family members or in, in, our, in our own lives um, to maybe hard marriages or maybe even spouses leaving and divorcing us um, to, uh, yeah, having to, like, being in a marriage and having to actually work on it and not just being really easy um, to just being overwhelmed with life, maybe having a hard time in school or not liking our job or not having a job or having financial issues. And there's the whole gamut. We, we suffer on all different levels in life. Um, and sometimes they don't seem to compare, like I said, to kind of this biblical suffering for Christ. But in reality, I think that, that all the ways we suffer in life are, are equally as valid as a lot of things we see in here and what we see in Acts. Um, and I think that often they're harder to endure because they're not quite as exciting and it's, it's, it's a little more subtle. And so suffering in our life, sometimes I think that we, we don't think of it as, as true suffering, so we don't necessarily endure it well. Um, but I just want you guys to take a minute and think about suffering. Think about suffering in your own life, anywhere from, from big crazy stuff to just mundane, life is hard and I was stressed and I didn't get enough sleep last night, um, to I had a, you know, a parent die or a sp- spouse leave me or something. So I just want you to think about this, and I'm not trying to trap you or anything here. Like, think about the mundane t- to the big stuff. What's going on in your life? Where are you suffering right now? 
I want us to look at now what the psalmist does in the midst of his suffering. <clears throat> Real quick, I'm going to run through basically just what this passage says about, about the psalmist. He says that he hopes in God's word. He holds fast to God's law. He takes comfort in God's rules. sings of God's statutes. He keeps God's law. He keeps God's precepts. He turns to God's testimonies. He keeps God's commandments. Doesn't forget God's law. Praises God because of his rules. So in the midst of all this suffering that he's describing, he's also describing a man who's constantly seeking after God, who's trusting God, he's putting his hope in God, um, which, is, which is the right answer, right? That's what we should all do. So in the midst of suffering, we should trust in God. So that's it. I'm just kidding. No, um, but that, that, yeah. that is, I mean, that's what, we, what most of us have been taught, at least if you grew up in the church, that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard times, just put your trust in God. And so I think that is the right answer, but sometimes that seems a, a bit trite. And so I think I'll, some of you and, and myself would ask the question, why? Why do we trust in God? So in the midst of suffering, in the midst of, of the, the mundane suffering in our lives, all the way to the craziness of this world, I mean, <clears throat> people, and, people suffering and dying around the world. I think about Haiti and an earthquake hitting and killing, what, 230,000 people, um, which I, yesterday I was, I was flipping through this uh, a photography magazine, and, um, and I love photography, and there are all these beautiful pictures, and then I kept seeing sections of pictures on, on Haiti, and they were really disturbing. I mean, there are these beautiful pictures, you know, beautiful photography, but of these grotesque scenes of, you know, people, die, people dead and dying in the streets, people getting beaten. I mean, this, the Haiti deal, it wasn't just the earthquake, it was the aftermath of rioting and people murdering people in the streets and people walking by people that are dying and just the craziness that happened after that. And there are these pictures of, of, children, of dead children and all this crazy stuff that, that made me really sad and made me ask the question, why would God do this and why should I trust him in the midst of this? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So life for us is hard. Life will continue to be hard. I mean, uh, if, if the Bible promises anything, it's that, that, we will, <laughs> that our lives will be hard. God doesn't promise uh, an easy life for us. Um, he doesn't promise comfort. Um, I think about when I was 15, my parents um, divorced. And at the time, I was um, a typical 15-year-old, very focused on myself and girls and sports and everything that 15-year-olds are consumed with. And so their, their divorce, in a, in a sense, at the time, didn't even really affect me that much. It just meant that I got to live with my dad and have less rules and more freedom. And, you know, um, it was more fun. Uh, but as the years have passed, their divorce has, has started to affect me more and more and makes me more sad. And I see this, this family that's been broken. And my brother and sister and I are kind of left with, without a family, just with some relationships with different people, with my mom and my dad and brothers and sisters, but, but no family, really. Um, and it makes me really sad. And then I think about divorce on the broader scale, that 50-some-odd percent of divorces in America end in divorce. And I wonder why this thing that God has created to, to reflect his love for the church and his love for the world um, why, why it ends in divorce so often and pain and why did God allow this marriage to happen that was just going to end in divorce and pain um, yeah and so and, and again why he allows earthquakes and tornadoes and all, all the stuff that, that we in our kind of western semi-sheltered lives don't even see not that we don't endure suffering but there's, there's some crazy suffering that we see on the other sides of the world if we, if we look um, I just want to 
don't turn there, but in Amos it says that does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Which is kind of a crazy powerful verse that he's saying that disaster doesn't come to a city unless God does this. And I think that often we try to let God off the hook for, for the, the, the mess of this world that, that we live in. Um, some small things we might say, well, God's using this for good, but when it comes to a big earthquake or something that kills hundreds of thousands of people and we see destruction and death and murder and all the, the things I don't even want to talk about up here, um, we generally try to let God off the hook and say, God didn't do that. God wasn't in that. There's no way God had, had anything to do with that. But this Bible portrays a God. It makes it very clear that the God we worship is a God that's in control of everything. He's a sovereign God. In, in, and nothing happens outside of his will, including earthquakes. And like Amos says, a disaster doesn't come to a city unless God does it, um, which is a hard truth. So, but in the midst of that, why do we trust him? If God doesn't guarantee us anything, he's not guaranteeing us comfort. He doesn't guarantee us health or life. He doesn't guarantee that my family is going to stay healthy or that my child will stay healthy. He doesn't guarantee that I'll keep my job or be able to provide food or, or you know, shelter for my family. None of this is guaranteed. So what are we trusting God for? Um, I see this, this idea of trusting and hoping in God is some, somewhat empty a lot of times because I don't, I don't know what we're meaning when we say that. I trust in the Lord. But what are we trusting him for? I mean, he doesn't guarantee these, you know, these things that we, that life and, and, and food and anything. He doesn't, he doesn't guarantee them. Um, <clears throat> and I'm reminded, and I kind of want to even ask the people, you know, you that, that do trust in God, that tend to trust in God in the midst of suffering, uh, like Job's wife said, like, why are you trusting in God? Job's wife, after he lost his, you know, everything he'd worked for, his family, his health, she said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And so, basically, God's given you some, he's given you gifts and then he's taken them all away. So why do you still trust him? Curse God. Why are you trusting this God that gives gifts and then takes them away? And I think about, what if we had friends that did this? What if we knew a person that did this, that was very generous with his gifts and gave you things that, that you needed and relied on and then you, come, you came to rely on him and then, and then he came and said, well, I'm going to take that back. Um, and maybe he did that over and over again with you. I don't know that we would trust that person. So why are we trusting God that does the same things, right? Um, I mean, I think that, I feel like I'm a pretty trusting person, and you guys probably are pretty trusting people. But I think that wisdom would tell you if you, if you had a friend that did this, that came and gave you things and then came and took them away, uh, you probably wouldn't trust them, and you'd probably have some derogatory things to say about them. Um, so why is God different? Why do we trust this God? Um, let's look back at, at the psalmist here. It's a guy who's, Enduring persecution, he's miserable, he's, he's being derided, he's, he's being ridiculed by people for his faith, um, he's homeless in a sense, his soul clings to the dust, he's miserable, yet he, he says he sings to the Lord and, and he still asserts that he, he puts his trust and faith in the Lord. So the question is why? Why is he doing this? Is, he, is this just morality? Is this just him doing it because he thinks he's supposed to, because he's been told in the midst of suffering, you need to trust the Lord, so he's just doing it because that's what he's been told to do? Or is it just kind of sentimentality? Like, this is something that makes him feel better. He knows that if there's nothing really in this world to trust, so he's got to trust in something, and so he just kind of says he trusts in the Lord, even though he doesn't really know what it means. Or, um, or is he just a fool? Is, is, is he wrong to be trusting the Lord at all? Is he just a foolish guy? I think he kind of answers this. So in verse 57... <clears throat> the psalmist says, the Lord is my portion. And so, 
This is the key verse to this passage, and if Brian were up here preaching, he'd be yelling at this point and extremely loud. You guys, um, but I'm not much of a yeller. But I want to emphasize that this is the, the crucial verse in this, in this passage, that the Lord is, is his portion. Um, so it's really important we understand what he's saying here. The Lord is my portion. Some saying the Lord is my portion. He's not saying the Lord is my provider. He's not saying the Lord's going to provide for me because even though the Lord is a provider, um, in this passage, he, he's, saying, he's not saying the Lord is my provider. He's not saying the Lord is my protector, even though that may, may be true as well. The, the Lord is our protector at times. He's not saying that these, these evil people who are ridiculing me, the Lord's going to protect me from them. <clears throat> He's saying the Lord is my portion. So the Lord is my gift. The Lord is my prize. Um, so not like, it's, he's not saying the Lord enables me to get what I want. The Lord provides comfort and food and shelter and family and, and all the things that I enjoy in life. He's not saying that because it's not what, that's not what this is saying. He's saying that the Lord is his portion. The Lord is the prize. The Lord is, is the, the true gift from God. So look at verse 50. It says, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. So he understands that the Lord is, is what gives him life, um, not the gifts of the Lord. You guys remember what happened to the Levites? Um, they were one of the, the 12 tribes of, tribes of Israel. And um, after being you know, enslaved by Egypt for however many hundred years and then wandering in the wilderness, all the while waiting and being excited about this land that, that, that God has promised them and is bringing them into. Sorry. <clears throat> so again, they're, they're waiting for this land, been wandering, hoping in God, hoping for this land. Then finally God brings Israel into the land. And so and when they come upon a, you know, an area of land, he would say to, to one of the tribes, this is your portion. So this is, use those words, this is your portion, this is your portion of the land that I'm giving you, Israel. And so each you know, tribe gets their own portion of land. And then he comes to the Levites, and he says, I'm your portion. <laughs> so basically, you've been waiting for this land for hundreds of years, for generations. You've been excited about, about this land that, you're, you know, that God's promised you, and then God says, well, actually, I'm, I'm your portion. You're not going to get any land, which sounds like kind of a jip, right? Um, but in reality, God is giving them something far better than the land that they've been waiting for. And, and the Levites became basically a picture um, of what, for, for all of Israel and for, for all of God's people, all of us, what the true gift of God is, which is himself. And not, not the gifts he gives, not land, not material happiness, not good marriages, but, but himself. Um, who said um? Megan told me not to say um. <laughs> I want to read a couple verses here, so don't worry about turning to them. But in Habakkuk 3.17, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So the issue here is defining what, what is God's gift to us. What's his, what's his ultimate gift? Um, God gives us all kinds of gifts, right? From family, friends, uh, to jobs, to you know, provision, material, material things, houses and cars, um, all kinds of stuff. 
But, but when you look at what Habakkuk says here, he says that take all those things away, all the, all the material things that I have, all the material things I've worked my whole life for maybe, um, and he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And then the psalmist kind of takes it a step further. He says, even take away my flesh, take away my life. And, I, and I'll, he says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So even when God takes away everything from them, everything they've worked for, maybe their family, all, even their health, so everything that they have, they still rejoice in the Lord. They still put their hope in Him because they know that God is, is the gift and not these things that, that we, we so often cling to. Um, I think about, I was trying to think of a good uh, kind of illustration of enjoying the, the, the gift more than the giver. And the only thing I could think about was marriage. And I'll, I keep coming back to marriage because I'm uncreative, not very creative with, with illustrations. But I think about how, Meg, how Megan and I are married. And, and Megan is God's gift to me. But Megan is the, is the true gift in our marriage. <clears throat> but Megan does a lot of great things for me. She's a great wife. She cleans her house a lot. She does all the laundry pretty much. She cooks every once in a while. She's uh, a great mom. She takes care of, of Ben and does a lot of great things. She even knows that I'm a, you know, I'm a, I love affection, so she'll sit by me and hold my hand even though she might not want to. And she just does things. She gives me gifts, you know. But I think about if I cared about those things more than I cared about Megan, if, I, if all I cared about were the things she did for me and the benefits that I got from being married to her, but I wasn't, too cons- I wasn't all that concerned with who she was or communing with her, or knowing her and having her know me, then our marriage would really be a sham. I mean, it would be, be worthless. She wouldn't be happy, and I wouldn't be truly uh, enjoying all that marriage has to offer. Um, I mean, I can get most of those things from just other places. I can pay people to come clean my house. I can, you know, find affection from other people. Um, so if I'm, if I'm missing the, the, the true gift of our marriage, which is Megan, then those things are kind of worthless. But if, I, if I'm holding on and cherishing and loving the true gift of Megan, then I'm free to enjoy all the gifts that she brings. Um, Sorry. Psalm 16.2 says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. So the psalmist is basically saying, he's not just saying there are all these great things and then God is the best, so we're going to miss out if we don't have God. Um, He's saying without God, all these other great things are worthless. Um, Not just they're not as good, he says, apart from you, he says, you're my Lord, I have no good apart from you. So again, all the, all the gifts that we receive from God, without God, those things are worthless. If, if we love all the things God gives us, but we don't love God, that's basically idol worship. I mean, we're worshiping the things that God gives us instead of worshiping God himself. Paul says, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Which basically what he's saying is to live is good because I get God, I get Christ, but to die is better because I get more of God. So notice he's not saying living is good because I get to enjoy a lot of these gifts from God. I mean, he lived a pretty rough life. Um, but, but to die is better because then I'm freed from, um, you know, all the junk in this world and all the pain I experience here. You know, he's saying this world is good because I get to experience God, but dying will be better because I get to experience God on a whole other level. Um, I get to experience communion and worship with him without the hindrance of, of sin and all the junk in this world. Um, which made me think about, about heaven. And you know, some, of the, some of God's gifts are, are material things that I mentioned, but some of God's gifts are things like salvation, our, our you know, uh, forgiveness of our sins. 
And so I think about, you know, why, why do we want to be justified? Why do we want to be freed from our sins? Typically the answer would be, well, so we can go to heaven, right? But why do we want to go to heaven is, a, is a, I think, a really important question. Um, so real quick, just think about, like, picture heaven in your mind. Heaven, new creation, when God comes down and, and fills the earth with his glory, like, picture what that will look like and what you perceive that to be. Real quick, so get a mental image. Because um, I think about, when I used to think about um, heaven, and I'm not saying I'm immune to this now, but I used to have this very clear picture of what heaven would be like. And the first thing I always thought about were batting cages, which is weird, but I love baseball. And so, like, you know, limitless, free batting cages sounded amazing. And, you know, all the food that I wanted and the best kind of food and really good friendships and relationships and all these things that, that were very me-focused, very selfish. I mean, just things, how are my needs going to be met? And I, and I pictured, okay, this is, you know, I love to go to the batting cages. This is how my, my needs are going to be met. But the problem with that is that heaven, new creation is going to be a specific place. It's not like we're, we're all going to have our own individual heaven that we get to create in our minds. I mean, God's going to come down and fill the earth with his glory, and that's, that's going to be what heaven is. And so um, this idea of us kind of creating what this is going to be like in our own minds um, with fulfilling all of our needs the way we would have them fulfilled here, uh, just it, I don't think that's what heaven's going to be like, and I think if that's our perception of heaven... We're not going to be very happy in a place um, where that stuff might not be there. Um, And don't get me wrong, heaven is going to be a place where all our needs are met and and all our needs are are fulfilled, but they'll be fulfilled in Christ because God will be there. We'll get to worship him, commune with him, unhindered by by the junk in this world. Um, So if your perception of of heaven or your idea of heaven um, doesn't begin with, I get to be with God, then um, I think we're missing something. Um, if you guys have a Bible, turn with me to Romans 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Okay, Romans 5, 1 through 5. It says, Therefore we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we see here that, that Paul's not just saying we rejoice despite our sufferings. He's not saying we, we suffer, but we, we're still going to rejoice even though we're suffering. He's saying we suffer, or sorry, we rejoice because of our sufferings, which is kind of an odd concept, I think. I don't think that, uh, personally, I never think about that when I have to get up at 3 in the morning, or when Megan has to get up at 3 in the morning with Ben, typically, um, or when my car breaks down, or when I'm not getting along with Brian and he's being a huge jerk and telling me I have to preach. Um, I don't think... I don't, I don't typically rejoice in, in those sufferings. I typically, I might on a good day rejoice despite them. I might say, okay, well, this stinks, but I'm still going to rejoice, you know. But I rarely re- rejoice because of my sufferings. But it's saying here that we rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings produce endurance, which is good. And that produces character, which is good. And that character produces hope, which is good. But, but then the question that, that I had was hope in what? What are, what are we hoping in? Again, what are we trusting in? What are we hoping in? If you look back to verse 2, 
um, the second part, it says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So again, that's an interesting concept because he's not rejoicing um, in the hope of better circumstances. He's not rejoicing that um, his job will get better or that he'll find a better job or that eventually he'll be able to find a better house or that his marriage will get better um, or that he'll be, I don't know, that his circumstances will get better. He's not rejoicing in that. He's rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, which is what we all, we all need, and that's the only place that true fulfillment and satisfaction can be found. And by all means, try to get a better job if you don't like your job. Definitely try to work on your marriage if that's messed up. Work on bad relationships. Work on that stuff. But Christ didn't come to, to, to give us and to bring us better jobs and better houses and better relationships and better marriages. Christ came to give us himself and to give us God. John Piper once said, If God is to love you, what must he give you? He must give you what is best for you. The best thing in all the universe is God. If he were to give you all health, the best job, the best spouse, the best computer, the best vacations, the best success in any realm, and yet withhold himself, then he would hate you. And if he gives you God and nothing besides, he loves you infinitely. Does this make sense? Um, All these gifts that God gives us are good things. And I don't want to imply that they're bad. But aside from God, they are bad. And so if we, don't, if we don't see God as the ultimate gift, if we see these, these gifts as ultimate gifts, and, and when I say gifts, I mean material things all the way up to salvation. If salvation is the ultimate goal, just the ending of our suffering, we're missing the point. And that, that even worshiping our salvation can be idol worship if we're not excited about what that brings us to, which is communion with God. And so, okay, so if, we, if we've established in all this that, that God's our greatest good and that God is the gift then the question is, how do we know that God um, is for us? How do we know that in the midst of our suffering, that God is giving us himself and offering himself, and he's not just offering us this suffering? How do we know that God is for us? So again, let's look back. Psalm 119. And it's the last verse, 64. The psalmist says, The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. So, in this verse here, right between steadfast love and teach me your statutes, there's an implied therefore. So read it with me like, like that. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love, therefore teach me your statutes. And this therefore is important because it tells us why he wants to be taught God's statutes, why he wants to trust and hope in the Lord. So he wants to tr- trust and hope in the Lord because the earth is full of his steadfast love. So this, this, this term steadfast love, this is... When God uses that word, he's talking about his covenant love with his people. So steadfast love, covenant love, they're the same thing. And so we see God's love all around us, right? We see it in the mountains and in trees and in the beauty of, of, the, you know, of what he's created. But God's steadfast or covenant love has been shown to us clearly through Christ, through the cross, through what Jesus did for us on the cross. So through the cross, God has bound himself to us in covenant. Um, and I think that covenant, that, that word has been probably skewed a little bit for a lot of us because of things like I talked about, like marriage. Marriage is the, the, the covenant we see most here on earth. Um, and we see that, that, that marriages are, are broken the majority of the time. And even in, in my marriage, uh, Megan and I are in covenant together. When we got married, I, I bound myself to her in covenant. 
but I'm still a messed up guy and I, and I constantly mess up in our marriage and I don't serve her and love her and lead her in the ways that I should. And, and so it's, you know, it's our covenant, my covenant with Megan is, is a somewhat bad example of God's covenant with us because God's love for us is perfect and his covenant with us is perfect. Um, Paul says in Romans, we know that for, for those who, who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are, who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to read that again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So, he's saying all things work together. Not certain things, not just these certain faith-building things, but he's saying that all things work together for our good as believers. Um, so, suffering, um, death in, the, in our families, earthquake in Haiti, all these crazy things, all this stuff that we hate in life is working together for our good. But again, what does that mean? What, what is the good that we're getting from that? Because, um, again, God hasn't promised us any kind of comfort in this life, and he's, he's actually promised us persecution. Um, but so the good that we get, the good that God is promising us here, is what we talked about earlier, when, when he says that the Lord is my portion. God is giving us himself and God is the good that he's giving us. So in the midst of our suffering, um, in the midst of all the junk in our life, in the midst of the junk that we see all around the world, God is trying to reveal himself to us and give, him, give himself more and more to us. He's trying to um, show us our need for him and turn, turning ourselves away from self-worship and worship of all these other things in life that we tend to cling to and, and reveal himself to us and give, give us himself. So just like John Piper said earlier, God is the greatest gift. And so if he, if he, uses, he uses whatever means he can to show us more of himself and to, and to, to turn our hearts to see um, and behold his beauty and worship him because that's the only thing that will truly satisfy in life. So, yeah, just kind of to, to wrap up, uh, kind of sum up this, this passage we've looked at, kind of wrote a little thing. I'm just going to read to you. Um, it says, God is for us and is working all things together for good. The fact that God has bound himself to us and is in turn for us is an amazing thing and should make us like the psalmist hope in God's word, take comfort in his promise, hold fast to his law, take comfort in his rules, and trust in him in the midst of suffering because he is our portion and his covenant love is sure because of Jesus. I want to read that one more time. God is for us and is working all things together for good. The fact that God has bound himself to us and is in turn for us is an amazing thing and should make us like the psalmist, hope in God's word, take comfort in his promise, hold fast to his law, take comfort in his rules, and trust in him in the midst of suffering because he is our portion and his covenant love is sure because of Jesus. So, yeah, I want us all, I want us as a community to, community to be able to endure suffering well, individually and, and together. And to do that, we have to, to understand the end goal and, and what, the, what the prize is. And so God is, is the prize, communion with him. And it's not the, the bettering of our circumstances, even though good circumstances are great, but not without God. So uh, to endure suffering well, we have to understand that God is our portion and that he's for us because of Christ. Um, so just like we end... Every Sunday, we're going to end here at the table with, with the, the bread and the cup, um, celebrating that, that God is for us because of Christ. So through Christ poured out blood and through his broken body, um, 
God has made peace with us. And so I really want this time, even tonight, to be a celebration. I mean, sometimes a lot of times communion is kind of a somber thing, but I want this to be a happy time, that, that we, have, we have life because of Christ, and so we should celebrate that. So if you guys will pray with me, um, we'll take communion. Hey, Lord, we love you, and we, um, we thank you that, that you are our portion, and that you've offer, offered us something far greater um, than, than generally what we hope for. You have something far greater than a better job or um, even a better marriage or um, a better car or a better house um, or even comfort in this life, Lord. You, you've offered us yourself. I pray that you would um, continue to reveal yourself to each one of us and, uh, and show yourself as beautiful. And, and I pray we would worship you. Um, so I pray for this, this meal we're going to partake together. And, and uh, I pray we would celebrate what we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.